Hello, and welcome to the Heathen's Journey podcast. I'm your host, Abby Pluff, and I'm so glad you're here. This is the show where I explore inclusive heathenry as a queer woman. We will be talking about traditional witchcraft, runes, folklore, and so much more. Join us, won't you, as we journey to the ends of the Nine Realms and back. Welcome back to the Heathen's Journey podcast. We've taken a bit longer of a break than I had originally intended, but I am based in Minneapolis and have been focused on supporting the uprising here. Even before the uprising began, I had already planned to talk about this topic next, and it feels even more urgent to do so now. For those of you who may be listening in the future, I am recording this basically um, right probably about two and a half weeks after George Floyd was murdered by four Minneapolis policemen, sparking um, a really beautiful uprising here in Minneapolis, as well as protests around the country and the world. Um, So this topic today feels really pertinent. Um, This week, I'm going to be talking about the history of white supremacist and Nazi appropriation of Germanic and Nordic symbols. This is at the heart of my work and is a big part of the reason I write about the Norse path to begin with. I think it is a deep responsibility that we have as white people to understand our cultural heritage and how we got to this place in history. So we know that there are certain runes that appear in the insignia of white supremacists today. The most common is Othla, the rune representing family or kinship. Tewaz, connected to Tyr, is also found in the crests of white supremacists. Many people do not realize that the swastika is an ancient symbol that represented the sun, but it was bastardized and used by the Nazis. Two solo runes next to one another are the symbol of the SS. It's incredibly painful to see these runes used for such hatred, and it is the responsibility of rune workers to fight against white supremacy and reclaim our symbols. Now, do I think it's possible to redeem the swastika? Absolutely not. At least, not in my lifetime, and I think it'll be a couple of other lifetimes before that is even a topic we can talk about. Um, The other runes, however, I think we can definitely reclaim. Part of the undoing of white supremacy in our spiritual life is for white people to reconnect with our own traditions. But these traditions are sometimes abhorrent when we see how badly they have been misused. For years, I avoided doing any work with Norse deities or runes because I was so appalled by the ways that this culture has been used to uphold white supremacy. Eventually, with Odin storming all over my rituals and my interest in in mythology growing, it became impossible not to consider working with the Norse. And then I realized that it was actually a deep need of mine to connect to my own ancestors and do the work. It is infuriating that white supremacists have taken so much of Norse paganism for so long, and it's time to reclaim it from them. A lot of people who continue to appropriate traditions from people of color seem to be pretty fragile or to mean well. 
we are taught that our own cultures are, quote, bad. And so we look to other cultures to fill in the gaps. But we are drawn to the things that are parallels to things within our own cultural lineage. A really good example of this locally is the sauna ritual. So I live on unceded Lakota and Anishinaabe territory, and both of these people use sweat lodges for spiritual growth. In the 90s in Minnesota, a lot of Native elders, or just um, Native people in general, were beginning to open the sweat lodge for visitors, and white women flocked to the sweats. This resulted in sweat lodge ceremonies filling up with white people, leaving no room for local Native people to access the sweat. Local Norse practitioners began reaching out to some of these participants, inviting them to sauna rituals. Sauna rituals look actually very similar to a sweat lodge ceremony, but there are several culturally specific elements to them, including birch broom, scrubs, and dowsing with cold water three times in between sweat sessions. When these particular white people discovered the sauna, they stopped appropriating the sweat lodge and left more room for indigenous peoples in public sweat ceremonies. So, of course, this is kind of like a micro example of ways that reclaiming our own heritage can leave space um, for others and also can be a positive. Um, So often we as liberals or leftists are taught that it is dangerous or wrong for us to engage with our own spiritual traditions as they are steeped in the ideologies that led to white supremacy. So what we've got here is actually a catch-22. You don't want to appropriate from other cultures because that is in and of itself a form of violence and colonization. And yet you're resistant to learning spiritual systems from within your own culture, which so often leads to inaction. When there is no, quote, right action, it feels like the safest thing to do is not to act. But there is a middle way, what I call the way of the red pen. Knowledge is power. If we allow the powerful to rewrite history without examining that history, we are ill-equipped to heal. Yes, read the difficult histories and always have your red pen handy. Question things. Read Black and Indigenous historians and then look at the other history texts and you can see what they're covering up. Go deeper. Try to find the threads of culture and history that are unique and rewrite them to align with your own modern life. I digress, but I think it's really important to think about this. This is the way of the red pen in action. This is having both the knowledge to refute these white supremacists and also recognizing the damage they've done and working actively to heal it. This is going to be a fairly lengthy episode, mostly just me talking, but don't worry, I'll include my resources in the show notes. Grab a cup of tea, a notebook, and settle in. I'm going long today. I'm going to start in the 1800s. I could definitely start earlier and talk about the Viking era and the brutal colonization and fighting that happened then, but I'll be covering some of that history in later episodes of the podcast. I'm starting here because this is when a lot of the European nations, as we know them today, were being created slash founded. There's a whole mess of complex history here that I will not go too far into. As much as I love history and love to learn history, I am not a historian, so please do bear with me. 
After the fall of Napoleon, what we now know as Germany became a collection of 39 sovereign states. In 1848, the German people started to push for revolution and reform. After the conclusion of a couple of wars with Denmark and Prussia, the northern German states were unified in 1862 by Otto von Bismarck. He was able to situate Germany as a nation in itself through negotiations with individual stateheads, as well as bringing peace to warring regions, again, Prussia and Denmark, as well as victory in the Austro-Prussian War. The 19th century was characterized within the area we know of as Germany as a time of political gains, but also economic instability, the Industrial Revolution, and war. This is all important because it sets the stage for the Weimar Republic and the Nazi takeover. What the people were searching for was a unified cultural background. As the Germanic states were uniting, people were trying to create a unified culture. This led to an interest in what makes Germany unique among Europeans, as well as a revival in interest in mythology. Wagner's Ring Cycle, or Der Ringen des Nibelungen, debuted in 1871 at the height of these unification efforts. That's not a mistake. It's a view into how people were attempting to construct their identities at the time. Notably, this is also the time when the concept of race as we know it was being solidified in academic circles. Anthropology was growing as a field in the 19th century, and it looked very different from how it looks today. It was essentially a system of categorization of people under a hierarchy. Many anthropologists used their discipline to argue that slavery of African people was justified. It never has been. And an imagination of European slash white superiority. The different nations of Europe were even filtered into different levels in that hierarchy. Irish and Italians at the bottom, English and Germans at the top. So this feeds into a Germanic and distinctly Northwestern European identity as a sort of, quote, master race superior to others. Does the idea of a master race sound familiar? You might remember distantly the Nietzsche bros, who were the worst classmates in college. Well, the same goes for history. Nietzsche is the worst. The concept of the Übermensch, or Overman, has been interpreted many different ways. This is basically a concept of evolutionary philosophy that the human race is evolving and that some have evolved faster than others. Some races, that is, have evolved faster than others. Here's a quote on it from Thus Spoke Zarathustra. You have made your way from worm to man. Much in you is still worm. Once you were the apes, and even now, too, man is more ape than any ape. The overman is the meaning of the earth. Let your will say, the overman shall be the meaning of the earth. Man is a rope tied between beast and overman, a rope over an abyss. What is great in man is that he is a bridge and not an end. End quote. White supremacists of the era, the Nazis, and white supremacists to this day use this philosophical concept as a sort of, quote, intellectual proof that they have evolved beyond other races. 
Hitler was convinced that the Aryan race is the end of this progression, that this is the Ubermensch that everyone should strive towards, and that it was the time of the Ubermensch. So what we've got is a perfect storm of racism and the development of white supremacy, all centered around Germanic culture and ideals. Anthropologists upholding Anglo-Saxon and Germanic blood as superior, philosophers spreading this idea that there is a master race based partly on skin color, as well as the unification of Germany and search for a Germanic identity, all leading to an increased interest in the mythology of the Germanic peoples by white supremacists in the 19th century. This all culminated in what we can refer to today as the Volkisch movement and the imagination of a superior white German nation state. The Germanic legends themselves became the source for ideas about what the, quote, ideal person was. The Volkisch movement rewrote history, drawing on the mythic cycles, folklore such as the Brothers Grimm, and medieval epics. At the same time, scholars were drawing on a racialized version of the medieval past. So scholars, medieval studies at the time, um, were latching onto this idea that the Middle Ages is when Europe became the sort of insular white region. Runes became an area of interest again for those in the occult circles, as well as circulating folktales that would feed into a perception of Germanic slash Nordic superiority. As a side note, this is also around the time when Norway became its own country, and there is a similar movement called Nordicism that I will be talking about later. So this historic and cultural milieu leads us right up to the eve of World War I. Again, I am not a historian, so I'm not going to talk through the war or the specifics of the rise of the Nazis, but this is a very important turning point. Um, so war breaks out, and in the German Revolution of 1918, Emperor Wilhelm II abdicated his position and Germany was declared a federal republic. New leadership signed the Treaty of Versailles, accepting defeat and losing 13% of its territory and all colonized territory in Africa and the South Sea. For a nation that just until recently had built itself up as a superior nation for a nation that used its own ideas of racial superiority to fuel World War I to lose so dramatically was humiliating. Communists seized power in Bavaria and a new currency was minted. But the myth of the German superpower and the idea that the Germans would rise again was essential for building up the willpower to start another global struggle. So I'm going to link this all back into occult stuff now. Odin had been venerated since the 19th century. And in fact, Odin had been one of the rallying points for German racists. The mythologized return of Odin was uh, something that really fed a lot of these racists. So this is when we see the runes and other pre-Christian Germanic symbolism being used explicitly to confirm supposed, quote, racial superiority. 
the Thule Society was founded shortly after World War I, which was an explicitly Volkish group that focused on Germanic occult works. The Thule Society centered around a blood claim to the Aryan race. Members had to sign a blood declaration that neither themselves nor their wives had any Jewish or, quote, colored blood. The Thule Society was one of the primary sponsors of the Deutsche Arbeitspartei, or German Workers' Party, which was eventually reorganized into the Nazi Party. It was in the Weimar era that the German youth also began to embrace Odinist beliefs. They were encouraged by older Germans who participated in the Volkish movements. According to Jeffrey Kaplan, it wasn't just local Germans, but, quote, sympathizers abroad whose anti-Semitic beliefs would lead them to conclude that, as Christianity is built on a Jewish foundation, it too must be swept away in the construction of a new millenarian new order. Unquote. This new order would be built upon a Germanic past that never existed. It was purely imagined by white supremacists. Out of this growing spotlight on Odin in German youth gangs, Carl Jung wrote what is his most controversial work, Wotan. So Jung worked with the idea that deep beneath our consciousness rests a dream world filled with archetypes. These archetypes have something to teach us and inspire action in our daily lives. Jung was watching the Hitler youth and the rise of fascism in Germany and wrote Wotan to process that. Jung connects Odin the Wanderer, the magician that moves through the world and stirs up magic and creates unrest, with the spread of the Hitler youth. Jung went on to write about how this surge in violence in Germany was because of the reawakening of Odin within the bloodlines of German youth. While this wasn't the first connection drawn between Odin and German nationalism, it was the most widely read outside of Germany itself. Wotan effectively and evocatively reconnected, or connected, Odin with Hitler, something that Nazis had been trying to do for years. Jung also wrote that militarism is unique to the Germanic spirit. Wotan, the warrior slash wanderer, was the archetype that he used to bring this all together. It was the awakening of Wotan within the German youth movement that was feeding this fascistic militaristic society. As World War II raged, Nazis continued to misuse Norse symbols. One of those myths of a Viking past was the Mannerbünde. Von Schnurbein described the Mannerbünde in the 1930s as all-male warrior associations in so-called primitive societies. This directly inspired the structure of the SS and the SA, which both relied on Odinist symbolism in their initiation rituals and cosmology. These are the inventions of the Nazi party, not rituals that are true to pre-Christian heathenry. After World War II, Odinist ideas were resoundingly discredited in Germany from a political perspective. However, in West Germany, there was a freedom of gathering and religion, and so Odinism shifted from being about this kind of militaristic force to a more religious one. 
This is still how these white supremacist ideas are spread today. White supremacists gather in prison under the guise of Odinism. Um, So basically, you know, being allowed the freedom to gather and religious uh, spirit. Um, But they are actually organizing their hatred and bigotry towards acting on it outside of prison and inside of prison. This isn't only happening in Europe. Um, I'm back to history now. This isn't only happening in Europe. Many white supremacist groups operating in America today organize under and around Norse imagery. So how did this all start? Els Christensen, a Danish immigrant to America after World War II, founded the Odinic Fellowship. This was explicitly based on the concept of Nordicism, an idea that the Nordic peoples were a subspecies of humanity superior to other races. Remember how Nietzsche's idea of the Ubermensch and the development of race theory and anthropology developed simultaneously? Nordicism is a direct result of that. Elsie Christensen began teaching Odinism to others and writing about it. She especially targeted prisons as a recruitment ground. And here is where Stephen McNallan and the Asatru Free Assembly come into play. McNallan is known is a known white supremacist and far-right extremist who founded some of the first Asatru organizations in the United States, and certainly the largest. His ideologies and teachings revolve around the idea of Nordicism, the German soul, and that this is not an open religion, but one that you must be born into by blood. The name for this? Metagenetics. Metagenetics is a concept that bolsters Stephen McNallan's politics and, quote, spiritual group. The concept defines culture as being passed down genetically between descendants, Metagenetics states that only those who are the literal direct ancestors of a tradition may tap into the collective ancestral knowledge within that tradition. McNallan has attempted to justify this position in the past, pointing to Native American spiritual traditions that are closed. But he staunchly refuses to recognize the power differential. While Native people are attempting to protect their spirituality from brutal colonization and erasure, McNallan's brand of Asatru is denying the humanity of anyone outside his mythic Aryan race. Now, the Asatru Free Assembly was not just the work of Stephen McNallan. Oh, no. Other leaders of the organization included Robert Stein, a former member of the KKK and a U.S. Nazi Party member, as well as Valgard Murray, another former Nazi Party member. These men have perpetrated violence against Asatru seekers who are gay and have a strict policy that people are ready to put their bodies on the line and use violence to meet their racist goals. The AFA was dissembled and then reborn as the Asatru Folk Assembly. There are other white supremacist groups that proliferate today, operating under the aesthetic and overstructure of Asatru. The Vinlanders Social Club, also known as Thug Reich, who use violence and control people they perceive as the enemy. 
a lot of these groups, both in Scandinavia and in North America, see immigration as a primary threat to whiteness in their countries. The soldiers of Odin state that it is their mission to, quote, protect citizens from refugees through vigilante street patrols, end quote. Many of the groups active in North America, such as the Vinlander Social Club and the Wolves of Vinland, use the concept of Vinland as their rallying cry. What is this imagined Vinland? Finland was a failed Viking settlement in North America in the 10th century. Two Icelandic sagas remain that discuss Finland, but they disagree over the details. Basically, the Vikings fought with the indigenous people, lost, and left. This may seem like a strange rallying point. Why celebrate a failure? But as Weber writes in White Supremacy's Old Gods, Vinland allows white supremacists to speak of the past as both the victors and the victims. Weber goes on to assert that Vinland also allows Odinists to assert a historical claim over North America. They are able to claim some level of indigeneity while maintaining and emphasizing their Northern European roots. So, I'm going to pause here. This is kind of what brings us into how white supremacists are operating in Asashru today. What does this mean for contemporary leftist heathens? Like myself. For some people, the association means that you will never fully be comfortable working within a Norse framework. I absolutely respect that. I do say that for those of us who feel called to work with this pantheon and cosmologies, there is there are ways for us to shift and change this idea of paganism. There are already many people who are working on creating inclusive heathenry. Many actively anti-racist heathens are already hitting back at the white supremacists. I am happy to count myself as one of them. I mentioned in the first episode of this podcast that I will never call myself a Satru. It is a wing of Norse heathenry that is far too close to the hyper-masculine comic book religion of the white supremacist. Instead, I say that I am a witch and a heathen. It helps me feel separate and distinct and hopefully can act as a signal to others that I might run into that I am not connected to white supremacist circles. Another thing you can do is to look for groups who talk about themselves as inclusive heathens. These are people who believe that Norse neo-paganism can and should be available to all, regardless of your blood ancestry. The Troth is an incredible resource for inclusive heathens. This is an international organization that promotes learning, study, and spirituality within the Norse pagan framework. The Troth also does active and important anti-racist work, including the essential in-reach program centered around stopping the spread of white nationalist groups in prisons. Another method of distancing ourselves from white supremacists is to focus on women in heathenry. Of course, white women can definitely be weaponized within white supremacy, but I'm talking about listening to women scholars, 
read work done by women who have less to benefit from toxic masculinity that runs rampant within the Norse pagan community. This is important because there are so many stereotypes of the Norse pagan community as hyper-masculine that we need to show that there are other perspectives. There's plenty of gender bending in the source material as well. This is one of the primary reasons I work with Loki. As a god, Loki is fairly canonically non-binary. There are also powerful women throughout the Norse cosmology. Another thing to do is lift up myths and aspects of heathenry that aren't often talked about or that play with our expectations of the gods. One of my very favorite of these is when Thor dresses up as Freya to reclaim his hammer. I just love cross-dressing Thor, and I'm, I'm delighted that Thor wanted to cross-dress. So I don't have all the answers. This is definitely like a constant process of interrogating our own whiteness and dealing with the uh, horrible ways that our you know, cultural lineage has been used to justify white supremacist actions. I'm only one person, and I feel like I'm still just scratching the surface of this wide world. This podcast will continue to call out white supremacy and center the inclusion of queer people, people of color, and women in heathenry. This is far from the only episode where I will talk about this issue. This is a continuous conversation. Another thing that I urge everyone listening to this podcast to do is to set up recurring donations monthly, quarterly, annually, whatever it is, set up monthly donations to Black and Indigenous and other people of color organizations in your communities that are fighting for racial justice. This is essential for us, especially if we're white um, and have class privilege to do So since I don't know when you'll be listening to this, um, I am not sure, you know, what to, what organization to tell you to look for, look for something local, um, your local chapter of the NAACP, um, your local Black Lives Matter chapter, even, you know, like Black artist collectives, that kind of thing. Um, I did not make this a monetized episode because I feel like the message of anti-racist heathenry needs to get out there and I didn't want to muddy it with any advertisements. So instead of advertising to you, I am urging you to donate to organizations that are doing critical anti-racist work. I have included all of my references in the show notes, or at least as many as would fit. If you read nothing else, make sure that you read Shannon Weber's article called White Supremacy's Old Gods, The Far Right and Neo-Paganism. There should be a link in the description. Big shout out to Wikipedia for helping me to pull together historic details and dates. If you've never given Wikipedia money, please do so. It's an invaluable resource. I've listed the primary really important resources in the show notes, though I was not able to list all of them because of space issues. For a full list of references, as well as a transcript for this episode, go over to my Patreon, patreon.com slash northernlightswitch. You can find me on Instagram at northern.lights.witch and on Twitter at northlightwitch. 
You can book a reading or catch up on the Heathen's Journey archives at northernlightswitch.com. Until next time, stay weird, you wonderful heathens, you. Bye-bye.